have in my hand a book, The Letters of John Newton, that I got from my father. John Newton is the author of perhaps the most famous hymn in uh, our culture, in our Christian culture, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And he based these on the experience that he had working as a slave trader in Africa and how he went from the depths of despair and from near-death experiences to becoming a born-again Christian and a minister in the church. And he was really a man of God, as you can tell from listening to that uh, that experience that he pours out into that song, Amazing Grace. So I thought it would be a good idea to look at some of these letters of John Newton as he's expressing, as a minister, answering letters sent to him, asking him for further explanations of the things that he's teaching. Now, obviously, not everything that he teaches we'll agree with as we read them, but that's the same for any sermon, any service. We're watching and we're waiting for a answer from heaven, if you like, to something that a minister or a book speaks to us to say, this is, this is the teaching I want you to follow. This is my revelation to you. And that may only happen once or twice during the course of a service or once or twice during the course of a book uh, or even as you read the Bible or certain verses may be highlighted to you over the years that you've read many, many times before, but they've never come alive. So what we're looking for in this is not to criticize John Newton because of his lack of understanding of certain things or his perspective that's that like all of us, it's it's limited by the times that we're living in, by the experiences that we have. We're looking to say, what's the spark of divinity? What's the, the truth that God put in him that can still speak to us today? Because eternal truth speaks to us through the experience of these men of old, these saints on which we today stand and build our relationship with God on the shoulders of these spiritual giants and one of them is John Newton so if you enjoy Amazing Grace as I do let's see what we can find little treasures in the letters of John Newton and so the first letter is uh, an answer to a question that he must have been preaching about the progressive work of grace and uh, it's grace in the blade and the scripture reference here is mark 4 28 so we're going to read a letter dear sir according to your desire i sit down to give you my general views of a progressive work of grace in the several stages of a believer's experience which i shall mark by the different characters a b c answerable to the distinctions our Lord teaches us to observe from the growth of corn mark four twenty eight first the ear excuse first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. 
The Lord leads all his people effectually and savingly to the knowledge of the same essential truths, but in such a variety of methods that it will be needful in this disquisition to set aside as much as possible such things as may be only personal and occasional in the experience of each and to collect those only which in a greater or less degree are common to them all i shall not therefore give you a copy of my own experience or of that of any individual but shall endeavour as clearly as i can to state what the scripture teaches us concerning the nature and essentials of a work of grace so far as it will bear a general application to all those who are the subjects of gracious operations by nature we are all dead in trespasses and sins not only strangers to god but in a state of enmity in opposition to his governance and grace in this respect whatever difference there may be in the characters of men as members of society they are all whether wise or ignorant whether sober or profane equally incapable of receiving or approving divine truths first corinthians 2:14 on this ground our lord declares no man can come unto me except the father who has sent me draws him though the term father most frequently expresses a known and important distinction in the adorable trinity i apprehend our lord sometimes uses it to note, denote god or the divine nature in contradistinction from his humanity as in john 14:9 and this i take to be the sense here no man can come unto me unless he is taught of god and wrought upon by a divine power the immediate exertion of this power according to the economy of salvation is rather ascribed to the holy spirit than to the father john 16:8 to 11 but it is the power of god and the father of our lord jesus christ and therefore severally attributed to the father son and spirit john 5:21 and chapter 6 44 to 63 second corinthians 3:18 to thessalonians 3:5 by a i would understand a person who is under drawings of god which will infallibly lead him to the lord jesus christ for life and salvation the beginning of this work is instantaneous it is affected by a certain kind of light communicated to the soul to which it was before an utter stranger the eyes of the understanding are opened and enlightened the light at first afforded is weak and indistinct like the morning dawn but when it is once begun it will certainly increase and spread to the perfect day we commonly speak as if conviction of sin was the first work of god upon the soul that he is in mercy about to draw unto himself but i think this is inaccurate conviction is only a part or rather an immediate effect of that first work and there are many convictions which do not at all spring from it and therefore are only occasional and temporary though for a season they must be very sharp and put a person upon doing many things 
In order to a due conviction of sin, we must previously have some adequate conceptions of the God with whom we have to do. Sin may be feared as dangerous without this, but its nature and demerit can only be understood by being contrasted with the holiness, majesty, goodness and truth of the God against whom it is committed. No outward means, no mercies, judgments or ordinances can communicate such a discovery of God or produce such a conviction of sin without the concurrence of this divine light and power to the soul. The natural conscience and passions may indeed so far wrought upon by outward means as to stir up some desires and endeavours, but if these are not founded in a spiritual apprehension of the perfections of God according to the revelation he has made of himself in his word, they will sooner or later come to nothing and the person affected will either return by degrees to his former ways second peter 2:20 or he will sink into a self-righteous form of godliness destitute of the power luke 18:11 and therefore as there are so many things in the disposition of the gospel suited to the work upon the natural passions of men the many woeful miscarriages and apostates among the professors are more to be lamented than wondered at. For though a seed may seem to spring up and look green for a season, if there be not depth for it to take root, it will surely wither away. We may be unable to judge with certainty upon the first appearance of a religious profession, whether the work be thus deep and spiritual or not, but... The Lord knows them that are his, and wherever it is real, it is an infallible token of salvation. Now, as God only thus reveals himself by the medium of scriptural truth, the light received this way leads the soul to the scripture from whence it springs, and to all the leading truths of the word of God soon begin to be perceived and assented to. The evil of sin is acknowledged, the evil of the heart is felt. There may be for a while some efforts to obtain the favour of God by prayer, repentance and reformation, but for the most part it is not very long before these things are proved to be vain and ineffectual. The soul, like the woman mentioned in Mark 5.26, wearied with vain expeditions, finds itself worse and worse, and is gradually brought to see the necessity and sufficiency of the gospel salvation. A may be a believer thus far. He, that he believes the word of God, sees and feels things to be as they are, there described, hates and avoids sin, because he knows it is displeasing to God, and contrary to his goodness, he receives the record which God has given of his Son, has his heart affected and drawn to Jesus by views of his glory and of his love to poor sinners, ventures upon his name and promises as his only encouragement to come to a throne of grace, waits diligently in the use of all means appointed for the communion and growth of grace, loves the Lord's people, accounts them the excellent of the earth 
and delights in their conversation. He is longing, waiting and praying for a share in those blessings which he believes they enjoy and can be satisfied with nothing less. He is convinced of the power of Jesus to save him, but though remaining ignorant and legality the remembrance of sin committed and the sense of present corruption he often questions his willingness and not knowing the aboundings of grace and the security of the promise he fears lest the compassionate saviour should spurn him from his feet while he is thus young in the knowledge of the gospel burdened with sin and perhaps beset with satan's temptations the lord who gathers lambs in his arms and carries them in his bosom, is pleased at time to favour him with cordials, that he may not be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Perhaps his heart is enlarged in prayer, or under hearing, or some good promise is brought home to his mind and applied with power and sweetness. He mistakes the nature and design of these comforts, which are not given to him to rest in, but to encourage him to press forward. He thinks he is then right because he has them and fondly hopes to have them always. Then his mountain stands strong, but ere long he feels a change. His comforts are withdrawn. He finds no heart to pray, no attention in hearing. Indwelling sin revives with fresh strength and perhaps Satan returns with redoubled rage. Then he is at his wit's end. He thinks his hopes were presumptuous and his comforts delusions. He wants to feel something that may give him a warrant to trust in the free promises of Christ. His views of the Redeemer's gracefulness are very narrow. He sees not the harmony and glory of the divine attributes in the salvation of a sinner. He sighs for mercy but fears that justice is against him. However, by these changing dispositions, the Lord is training him up and bringing him forward. He receives grace from Jesus, whereby he is enabled to fight against sin. His conscience is tender, his troubles are chiefly spiritual troubles, and he thinks if he should but attain a sure and abiding sense of his acceptance in the Beloved, hardly any outward trial would be capable of giving him much disturbance. Indeed, Notwithstanding the weakness of his flesh, excuse me, and indeed notwithstanding the weakness of his faith and the prevalence of a legal spirit which greatly hurts him, there are some things in his present existence which he may perhaps look back upon with regret hereafter, when his hope and knowledge will be more established, particularly that sensibility and keenness of appetite with which he now attends the ordinances desiring the sincere milk of the word with earnestness and eagerness as a babe does the breast. He counts the hours from one opportunity to another, and the attendance and the desire with which he hears may be read in his countenance. His zeal is likewise lively, and may be, for want of more experience, too importunate and forward. He has a love for souls, and a concern for the glory of God, which, though it may at some times create him trouble, and at others be mixed with some undue notions of self, yet in its principle it is highly desirable and commendable. 
John 18.10 The grace of God influences both the understanding and the affections. Warm affections without knowledge can rise no higher than superstition, and that knowledge which does not influence the heart and affections will only make a hypocrite. The true believer is rewarded in both respects, yet we may observe that though A is not without knowledge, this state is more unusually remarkable for the warmth and liveliness of the affections. On the other hand, as the work advances, though the affections are not left out, yet it seems to be carried on principally in the understanding. The old Christian has more solid, judicious, connected views of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of his person and redeeming love. Hence his hope is more established, his dependence more simple, and his peace and strength more abiding and uniform than in the case of a young convert. But the latter has, for the most part, advantage in point of sensible fervency. A tree is most valuable when laden with ripe fruit, but has a peculiar beauty when in blossom. It is springtime with A. He is in bloom, and by the grace and blessings of the heavenly husbandmen will bear fruit in old age. His faith is weak, but his heart is warm. He will seldom venture to think himself a believer, but he sees and feels and does those things which no one could unless the Lord was with him. The very desire and bent of his soul is to God and to the word of his grace. His knowledge is but small, but his, it is growing every day. If he is not a father or a young man in grace, he is a dear child. The Lord hath fixed, visited his heart, delivered him from the love of sin, and fixed his desire supremely on Jesus Christ. The spirit of bondage is gradually departing from him, and the hour of liberty, which he longs for, is approaching, when, by a further discovery of the glorious gospel, it shall be given him to know his acceptance, and to rest upon the Lord's finished salvation. We shall then take notice of him by the name B in a second letter, if you are not unwilling that I should prosecute the subject. I am, etc., etc. And that is the first letter in the Grace in the Blade, Grace in the Ear, and the Full Corn in the Ear series by <coughs> John Newton. And I trust you'll enjoy that.